Well, we take a moment um, this morning to do an update on One Life, and One Life is a 30-month financial challenge around here above and beyond all of our normal gifts and uh, tithes, and it's a 30-month long it's over a million dollars, and it goes to various different initiatives as well as stuff here like paying for the mortgage and that sort of thing, continue mm-hmm. to buy the building. So the one we want to focus on this morning, Marta, which you're in charge of, is welcoming the stranger yeah. uh, about refugees coming in, and you have an update for us. I believe One Life has committed about $7,500 over the 30 months to it, uh, which is cool. Yeah. And uh, so give us a little idea about what's sure. going on these days. Yeah, so I want to focus on two things. Um, before COVID started, I got to take a trip to the border, to the Mexican-American um, uh, border on Tijuana and San Diego. And so that's one thing I want to focus on. The second thing is the things that we're doing here locally, which we'll talk about. So we're getting ready to do something mm-hmm. this week. And got today. changes coming. Yeah, yeah big ones. So um, some of the money that we uh, use from the 70, well, we haven't gotten the $7,500, but we're going to use it as soon as we get it. It's on schedule. It's on yeah. schedule. So some of the money that we actually have been using that was in our fund, because we have a fund, and, um, was the reunification of families at the border. And so one of the things that I really wanted to focus on, I love the liturgy that says, Lord, let us be moved to compassion by love for the one. So there's so much that are that's happening there that drives the narrative that we don't really understand. I'm one that did not understand the situation until I went to the border and saw what was happening. And we got to World Relief works with local churches to mobilize in the worst situations all around the world. And one of the situations before COVID was the mass migration from the Central American countries into America. So what's important to know is that nobody leaves their home. Um, because they, you know, want to. Yeah, like like a, you made a distinction here a couple of years ago. There's a big difference between a refugee and an immigrant. You know, an immigrant wants to come to the U.S. Refugees lost their home, and they're just trying to find a place to be, and they would like to go back home. Yeah, you know? they would like to go. They've been displaced. Before they even migrate, they, they've, been, they've been displaced for some usual credible threat. So what World Relief is working with along the border are people who are seeking asylum and because they've been under some credible threat. No one is sending their children ahead of them unless it was really bad where they are. Nobody is doing that. Yeah. And what we met with Border Patrol. We got to see cases tried. There was a lot of things that we got to see. I'd love to welcome you guys into our group because I did a longer presentation of the things that I learned. So that people here could join a group called uh-huh. Welcoming, Welcoming the Stranger. Stranger. And what do you guys do? You, 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 know, you strategize do... and get things done about getting stuff. I was just What'd thinking. I was just thinking we don't meet very often. And we don't do, uh, we don't take a lot of time, but we do a lot of work for the little that we do and the little money that is is given, uh, mainly because of Shelly Dyer over there, but that's a whole other story. She's a workhorse. But um, we, so we do a lot of work. you guys work on doing what? Like mm-hmm. getting a house put together for people? We're going to do that today. So okay. we can talk about the um, border later if you're interested. Join our group. But today we are... Um, working with a local organization called Della Lamb, and they are actually are also partnered with Global Orphan, which Jamie Davis works for. And so um, there's a family of nine coming in from the Congo. The Congo is a war-torn country. They have been in a refugee camp at least for a year, if not more. So this family of nine have been there. Uh, there are seven children, 
And um, what these resettlement agencies do in Kansas City is that they help these families when they come in to resettle, and they have 90 days to fully assimilate into American culture. They also have to pay the American government back for all their flights here. So anything that the American government does, I mean, I think the narrative is is they're taking all our money, but they actually have to work and pay everything back. And then they have to be on their own in 90 days. This family does not speak English. They will not have a car. The home that they're going to get, I think we have pictures of. Yeah, I think there's Uh, there's some right there. Is that the home? That's the kitchen, y'all. Um, so we had you guys, I posted last week on the needs to fill the house with things and you guys did it like within a week things. I'm not even sure that microwave is going to fit. Like it is something that is amazing that our congregation has done. So you guys have done so wait, that. The house need to be outfitted and in mm-hmm. one week everybody showed up with money out of pocket, there. out of their own pocket. Oh yeah. Don't give any more. Done. We have it. Like beds and. Utensils, lamps, and, and toilet paper, and dishes, and super cool. People gave new, you know, just went out and bought new stuff. So it's yeah. some of the fund can't went to that. We're going to buy a lawnmower because the lawn is atrocious. But um, some of the those are the things that we're doing, and we just posted online. So the time is very little. We learn about this just because they change. I mean, the laws change and things change all the time. So we're, we keep up with the um, news and we keep up with what's happening legally because mm-hmm. it's all legal. Mm-hmm. And then um, we also do these things periodically that get things done. And so I'm really proud of the group for mobilizing the rest of us. And I'm really proud of everyone jumping in. You guys are awesome. It makes me cry. When does the family get here? Okay, so Shelly Dyer, because I was wrong. I said first service was Wednesday, but apparently it's Thursday. Um, oh, good. We got lost time. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> the mattresses for the bunk beds, the bunk beds are getting put together today. If you guys want to see the house, come and see me after um, service, and It'll I'll be give like you the out address. lobby or down yeah, here? Yeah, I'll be either in the lobby or here. Um, okay. There's really nothing more we need. We, need, we could use some more help if you guys want to help, but there's kind of specific things we need done. Yeah. All right. so, yeah, so talk to you about it. Talk to me about it, or Shelly Dyer, because I'm, um, she's also a little more organized than me. Mm-hmm. Cool. Well, um, let's pray for welcoming the stranger and for this family coming in and for the work of Lakeland. So let's rise up, because we need to get our blood moving. So Lord, uh, we pray for this family coming, uh, the family of nine from the Congo. We pray, Lord, that they would see the love of Christ uh, through those of us here at Lakeland, that we would be Jesus to them. We pray, God, for their emotional trauma that they've been through, uh, for healing, and we pray, God, that your work would continue around here. Thank you, God, for the gifts to one life and the work that it does. So uh, may, may your kingdom come here on earth as it is in heaven. And we all said amen. Thanks, Marta. Good stuff going on there. Super cool. Thanks, guys, for pitching in on that thing. Everybody have a seat. And we're going to move into our teaching time. Uh, hey, just before that, um, something cool happened this week, you know, uh, while we're talking about kind of family stuff. Where is Tate Turner? There he is with a hoodie over him. So Tate Turner saved someone's life this week doing compressions for 10 minutes. A kid collapsed on the soccer field, and he just went over there and did the Tate thing. Like, oh, shucks, no big deal. Just save another person's life. So... Um, yeah, thanks, Tate. So he's a certified, your certified lifeguard and all that. So yeah, he knew what to do, and nobody else knew what to do. Like, so hey, 
get to know Tate if you like uh, have some a friend like that around you now and then. So uh, kind of a good thing to have. Well, I've been doing a three-week series here, a short little series, um, really just jumping on to Pastor Garrett's series on what we do. And I thought, I'm going to do some what we do. And so I did, uh, I just called it Let's Go, Let's Stay, and Let's Leave. And this is the last installment, Let's Leave. And uh, even Garrett this week's kind of like, hey, I'm kind of curious about this Let's Leave thing. Like, yeah, me too. So, um, no, I actually have been most excited about this one for the entire term of the thing. So uh, let's jump into this deal. Um, so let's, let's leave. The obvious point here to make, which is not actually everything I want to talk about, but the most obvious question is going to come to mind is, when is it a good time to leave the church? When is it a good time to leave the church? To get at this notion of leaving... We turn to the Gospel of John in the New Testament and the huge, noble, magnanimous person of John the Baptist. We jump into John's Gospel. So remember, there's two Johns going on here, John the Gospel writer and then John the Baptizer. We go to Gospel of John, third chapter, verses 25 through 30. If you care to look it up, it's also on the screen. Now, a discussion about purification arose between John the Baptizer's Gospels, uh, disciples, and a Jew. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, the one who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you testified, he is here baptizing and all are going to him. And John answered, no one can receive anything except what has been given him from heaven. You yourselves are my witnesses that I said, I am not the Messiah, but I have been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. And for this reason, my joy has been fulfilled. He must increase, but I must decrease. John is saying, they're asking him like, hey, everyone's going to Jesus to be baptized. What's going on? John says, it's not about me. I am just the friend of the bridegroom. He must increase, I must decrease. So first, let's not miss this excellent opportunity for some needful Bible study right here. John's gospel is not like the other three gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, okay? It's different. John's gospel is most likely written late in the first century A.D., okay? Probably it was written around 90, 80 or 90 A.D., which is late in that century, Considering that Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the other three Gospels, were probably written somewhere around 60 A.D. Okay, so 60 A.D., and this one's written in 90 A.D. And remember, of course, that the Gospels were all written about Jesus, his life, and the crucifixion and the resurrection. That all happens around 30, 33 A.D. So you got 30 A.D., you got 60 A.D., and then you got 90 A.D. John's comes in very, very late. Therefore, John's gospel is unlike the other three synoptic gospels, as they're called. They're called synoptics, and you can kind of hear the root word in there, synopsis, because the other three gospels are covering the life of Jesus. Hey, Jesus was from Nazareth. Jesus was born to Mary. There were the Magi, the wise men, you know, and they traveled around Galilee. And here's all the dates and the times and the facts and all that sort of stuff in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John's like, I'm writing late. You guys already all know that. The church knows the story. They know Matthew, Mark, and Luke. I don't need to tell you the whole history thing. 
He's going to take a different approach. He's going to take a different approach. John's going to take a different approach. Very first verse of the very first chapter in the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then later on he says, in verse 14, he says, The Word became flesh and lived among us, and we have seen his glory. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everybody knows this sort of thing. But John's going to take a different spin on the whole story since everybody knows the story of Jesus. He's going to tell a cosmic storyline. He's going to reframe the creation story in the beginning. You're like, oh, yeah, that's first verse out of Genesis, the very first book of the Bible. And he's going to say, like, let me tell you how Jesus is like the recreation of everything. As a matter of fact, there are actually seven signs representing seven days. And then there's an eighth day, the first day of the new week, and that is the new creation. And very intriguing to follow that through the whole Gospel of John. So there's your sort of background about the Gospel of John. But at the very beginning, the first three chapters of John... John, the gospel writer, uses John the Baptist, the baptizer, as a controlling storyline to set things up and shorten down his story. So he has things in there, like in chapter 1, he says, John talks about himself. He says, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah says. And if you're a listener, you're supposed to say like, oh, yeah, yeah, I know all of Isaiah. That's right. John is this one who's crying in the wilderness saying, everyone pay attention. I'm going to purify. We all need to be purified, right? And then we find John baptizing his fellow Jews across the Jordan River. They're actually on, if you're facing Israel on the map, they're on the east side of the Jordan, not the west side, not the West Bank, as we all hear about in the news. They're on the east side, and most likely, they're crossing over the muddy old Jordan River. It's not a ritually pure river like you would find in a portico in the temple where it's very clean water. Instead, it's a muddy, snaggy old thing at that point, and like a Missouri River, not like a Colorado Spring River, you know. And um, so people are reclaiming the land. They're becoming the people of God again, just like their ancestors did. They walk through the Jordan River and take possession of the land. That was a purification of the people, the nation. And that's why the Pharisees and everybody else are all coming out to say, like, yes, we want to be those people. So that's kind of what's going on there, the people of Yahweh moving into the promised land. Verse 35, there in chapter 1, the next day, John again was standing with two of his disciples, and as he watched Jesus walk by, he exclaimed, look, here is the Lamb of God. There he is. That is the anointed one. John the gospel writer uses John the baptizer to reaffirm the prophetic divine mission of Jesus. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks ahead of me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but I came baptizing with water for this reason, that he might be revealed to Israel. Three different times, John the baptizer states, I'm not the Messiah. I'm not the one. The the Pharisees come after him. They say like, who are you? He says, I'm nobody. It's all about Jesus of Nazareth. I am simply a signpost pointing toward the anointed one, the Messiah. Messiah means anointed one in Hebrew, and Christ means anointed one in Greek, just so you can kind of get this stuff down. John the baptizer's role comes to his dramatic and ominous martyrdom, famous, 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 in his beheading at the hand of evil King Herod. Herod, 
who squashed anyone who challenged his authority because he wanted to keep his power. He even killed his own brother. Uh, yeah, wicked dude. John the Baptist's ministry then ends there in the third chapter of the Gospel of John with these classic words that we started with. He must increase, but I must decrease. That's what makes John such a, such a cool person. The whole way, he says, it's not about me. It's about Jesus. John leaves the gospel. John the Baptist leaves the gospel. And it's as though John the gospel writer, the one writing this there in 90 AD thereabouts, he seems to be announcing also his own departure. He too is leaving because he's old. He's leaving soon. Gospel writer John was probably a teenager. He could have even been eight or nine or ten years old when he walked the roads of Galilee with Jesus. That was not unusual in those times to attach yourself to a rabbi. He could have been a, really a boy. And that's why he could live so long. He's actually the last disciple according to our tradition. And it, it's a tradition of the church that John, the last disciple, was so old around 90 A.D., that And so infirmed that he was unable to walk and he was carried on a gurney through the church. And as he was carried through the fledgling church, John would lift his head off the gurney and raise his hand. And he would say and cry out, little children, love one another, love one another. As though he's desperately telling the church, like, this is the whole important thing. If my last words is my last breath, love one another, little children. When you're about to leave, you tell your children to love one another. During the past year and a half, we've had a handful of people leave Lakeland Community Church. I mean, really leave. Most people who aren't here just have gotten out of the habit of going to church, right? And they're like, oh, yeah, I forgot. But a handful have truly left us. And those who have left us have left because of politics, both ends of the political spectrum. Lakeland can't win. We, we just can't please anybody here. So we can displease everyone, but we can't please everyone. So both ends of the political spectrum because of something we said or something that we didn't say. Uh, they hurt left. They hurt left unheard. Nobody cares about me. Lakeland is liberal. Lakeland's conservative. No, nobody left crying out, little children love one another. Nobody left stating, stating he must increase, I must decrease. So when is it time to leave a church? I'm not going to catalog the whole thing, but at the top of the list is heresy. <laughs> Anybody who denies the Christ, denies that God you know, is the creator, that Jesus didn't raise from the dead, heresy. That's, that's when you leave a church, when they're not teaching the gospel. I suppose then, later down in the catalog... I suppose folks could leave if there was some egregious, malicious harm, like the harming of children in a church. And I'm going to say something here that's slightly uncautious. I understand I'm saying it. Even then, with such egregious sin, even then, the lessons of love and truth-telling, reconciliation, restitution, are all truncated and cut off at that point if everyone just leaves. Nobody learned anything. They just all leave shaking and wagging their heads saying like, church, church. 
about this time of year, just about the 1st of July, in the year 2004, we had a staff person who worked with our youth and they committed adultery, not with a student. No kids were involved. But the damage was severe to many, many, many involved, to the whole church. And I'll never forget sitting across from a young woman of about 13. And she asked me, why did he do that? And I had no good answer. But the unthinkable thing happened in all of this. Nobody left. All the people involved stayed. And it was a hellish amount of work. I remember Pastor Marta saying that week, she said, I think I just lost one year of my life. And we all just sat there nodding. But nobody left. We stuck it out for years. I mean, couples walked with damaged people for a long time. We just, we just decided to commit to each other. We, we're probably just too dumb to know any different. We just thought that's what the church was supposed to be. And so we just did that. And even to this moment, there are people in the room who are not comfortable with me bringing up this topic because 17 years later, it is still hard. And we remember the pain and we have the scars, but we didn't quit. We didn't leave. Every pastor I talked to in desperation that week, every pastor I talked to about how to handle staff misconduct like this said they did it wrong. I was bound to determine not to do it wrong. They said they tried to protect the innocent. They tried to protect the innocent by sweeping it under the rug. And all it did was blow up, you know, the, later in the month. And just get worse. Because then they looked like they tried to deceive everybody. We didn't do that. It was all out. Every pastor said they'd failed to handle it appropriately. And I, I'm just going to say, I believe... You know, in hindsight, I believe Lakeland handled the staff infidelity about as good as it can be handled for such a messy situation. But most importantly, because we all stuck around, we learned how to be the people of God. We all grew. And I never want to go through it again. I think we all, from that point, started to walk with a bit of a limp. Wrestling will cause you a limp, right? You can get damaged. I mean, the weird part is we all wear scars like this, right? We, we all have scars, right? You got scars. Limps and scars tell your story. Limps and scars are your identity. You ever get around, start do scar stories? Oh, yeah? Have you seen this one? You're like, oh. Stars make an identity. Scars make an identity. You carry them your whole life. And church is no different. I mean, what would have happened if everybody just suddenly left? You know, 15 years later, I know what would have been going on. Everybody, nobody would be here or whatever. And, and, and people would be walking around 17 years later saying like, yeah, church, it's all messed up. Pfft, church, church, merch. I don't know. I stopped going. I don't go anymore. I mean, I have my own kind of private little thing I do. 
but I don't do church, no thanks. Now, theologically, the few who have left us over the past year or so for political reasons, I believe they have violated the body of Christ. As the Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the members of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. We are less without those who have left. We are missing something. They listen to other voices, cultural voices, political voices, secular moral voices, nationalistic voices, whatever echo chamber they found themselves in. And they have listened to family and relatives and, and they chose that voice or those people as their real people as opposed to us. Let's leave. As Reverend Dr. Tim Settle writes, the two worst words in the church are, we're leaving. Because it's a failure to actually be the body of Christ and it violates the body. Those words are as impermissible in the church as if be the hand said to your own feet, we're leaving, like your hands could leave your feet. This is the weird, curious thing about the church. It's unlike any other organization in, in human culture. It's unlike this. It's this weird thing because we don't choose who comes to Lakeland. We don't, you're sitting with people that are not your friends, like you didn't choose them. But you're the village, you're the body of Christ thrown together, and it only works when you say, like, I am committed to be here and be the body, despite the fact that I disagree with that guy. That's what makes it the body of Christ. That's the attractive part of church in a weird way. Now, I mean, granted, obviously, there, not everybody who comes through our door sticks, we're not some holy place where we're just pure i mean face it right just call it what it is uh you don't see many black families sticking around lakeland i mean somebody said this week they said like you know if they'd all just show up at once they'd say like hey man this is our church so it'd be like that'd be cool i didn't work as a matter of fact on the day i retire around here my one big regret is that we didn't become you know more multicultural maybe it'll still happen but in general, we don't willfully choose who comes to Lakeland, who does. Nobody's consciously sitting around thinking about it. It's just the usual cultural, you know, pharaohs that go out there to say, like, yeah, we're not hanging out. We're all just thrown together, though. And somehow, over time, we all become a people. Philosopher, Augustinian philosopher James Smith recounts a story about a poet. I don't know who the poet is. Mary Carr, who was asked by a non-believing friend, Lena Durham. I guess they're uh, literature people. And so uh, Lena asked Mary, she said, what's it like to be a person who thinks and cares about Jesus and has religion in your life but still hangs out with New York literati? What's that like? So quoting James Smith, I had this amazing thing happen to me in mass, Mary said, a couple of weeks ago. A guy came up to me and I had my iPad, and there's a thing that lets you follow the readings, you know, the church readings. And I'm looking at that and not reading my email. I'm looking at that. And this guy comes up from the back of the church dressed up in a coat and tie like uncle assistant principal or something. And he says, could you turn that thing off? And I said, excuse me? And he said, the light is bothering me. 
and I thought for a moment, and I, I'm trying to be a Christian, and I said, okay, yes, yeah, sure, yeah, yeah, no problem. And then I sat there and wished him dead during the entire Mass. <laughs> and, and then when I was walking out of church, he came up to me and he said, I'm sorry, I know there's something wrong with me. And that was her answer on why she can be involved in the church to her atheist friend. There's something about church that works like this. You walk in thinking like, yeah, these are not my people. And then after a few minutes or an hour of worship, you walk out saying like, hey, these are my people. Not my people. That's my people. And then you find a few people to hang out with during the week. And those are even your real or real or real people. And you become a body. And somehow the Holy Spirit's in the midst of that. When you stick it out. That's the way it works. There's something about church that just works like this. It just works that way. You know, what's hit me over the years is that people don't really believe. I I hate to say this to you. It's kind of like, okay, we're going to go over behind the curtain. I'm going to tell you a secret. Because people don't really come to church because they believe in Jesus or Christianity. At least at the beginning. We assume, we'd like to assume that we all think, I believe in order to understand. We think we believe in Christianity like we thought it through, but we haven't. We don't believe in order to understand. No, we love in order to know. That's the way it really works. That's the dirt path, not the sidewalk. We all fall in love with others, with Jesus, and then we just know. I mean, sure, then we pack it in with a bunch of validation and scriptures and, you know, belief and dogma, and we do the Apostles' Creed and all the rest of it. We find out that other people's stories around here are the same as our story. And that brings meaning. That brings knowing. Church is much closer to an AA meeting than a Bible college. It it just is. Every AA participant tells the same exact story of addiction. You would never go to an AA meeting because you're going to learn something new. There is nothing new. It's the same story out of everybody. What really happens is you sit at the AA meeting and you say like, that's me. That's me. That's me. That's my story. You love in order to know. Now, the speakers of the day means you're telling you where you belong and who your people are. And that's like church. The Protestant church has two sacraments. Catholic church has seven. Protestant church has two sacraments. um, Communion and baptism. Tonight we do baptism. And we're going to, here at the end of service, we're going to do communion. Sacraments don't just con... Don't just convey some spiritual, otherworldly reality. That's not their only function. Communion is just bread, and wine or grape juice. It's it's just that stuff. Baptism is just water. What a sacrament does is it tells you who you are. We share a loaf. We share a cup. That's why, you know, when we started the church, I said, we're going to use one cup. Now, granted, we got big enough where one cup became impractical, but we, we share one loaf, one cup, one water. We share the waters of baptism. More than symbols, they make real something. 
that we cannot see and we see it in each other. The Holy Spirit holds us together despite our differences, not because of our, our sameness. What we have to leave then, like John, is ourself. He must increase, I must decrease. That's John's greatness. That's what's so cool about John, is that he could say that. He must increase, I must decrease. The church uh, celebrates John the Baptist Day on June 25th. So in more liturgical churches, this week, this day, they're celebrating John the Baptist Day, which is part of the reason why I chose this, of course. John the Baptist Day is June 25th, a couple of days ago. You know why they choose June 25th? Think about it. It's exactly opposite six months from December 25th, Christmas, the birth of Jesus, simply because John said, he must increase, I must dis- decrease I am the furthest away in the calendar calendar from Jesus. Just so we'd all remember. I thought that was always a cool thing. Tonight, we gather uh, not just to support our brothers and sisters who are being baptized and confirmed. No, we gather to be the people. We become, again tonight, just like we are now, the people of God. I want to leave you with something. Um, I'm going to leave you with a parable. You ever tried to write a parable? It's difficult. There was once a large extended family, but the siblings didn't get along. As a matter of fact, they couldn't stand to be together, would not be together. The parents were distraught. They tried to get the siblings, their children, to show up and eat together a meal and play and laugh and tell their stories. But the siblings did not change their minds and instead blamed the parents and said it was their fault that the kids didn't want to be together. So the parents decided to solve the problem by just having get-togethers with the siblings who agreed with each other and not with the siblings who they didn't like or didn't agree with. That worked, but it was a large amount of work for the parents, and it exhausted the parents. And besides, the small agreement dinners only pointed out the fact that the family was broken. And the dinners were shallow and often drifted into talking about those other siblings that they didn't like. Great-grandma wanted everyone together because family was all she had. She invited all the various sibling groups to their own parties, so they believed. Great-grandma told the parents to invite the separate sibling groups to all one party. Come to your party for great-grandma. But there was a party rule. Great-grandma was hiding somewhere in the house, and you had to find her and join her in hiding and be silent. It was a big game of sardines. Very fun. But the siblings didn't know how all, didn't know that all the disagreement siblings were invited. They didn't know. And the party day came. All the disputing siblings came at their separate times. But once the disputing siblings found out that those other disagreeable siblings were present, they left. 
They got back in their cars and they left because they were angry that the parents had deceived them. And they refused to be in the same space as the other siblings. Great-grandma waited and waited in her sardine hiding space. But none of the children ever came to be with her. A couple of years later, great-grandma died and went to heaven. The disputing, disagreeable siblings also grew older and older, and their children never knew their cousins. They only heard the bad stories about their aunts and uncles. And the siblings got so old that they too died and went to heaven. Almighty God, to you all hearts are open and all desires known, and from you no secrets are hid. Cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit that we may perfectly love you and worthily magnify your holy name. Through Christ our Lord, amen.